0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023, where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Grizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. This is Richard Lloyd and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. DIY and Howe Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture, technology,
1: and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco today. Okay, just a little news. Pantheon Podcasts, in partnership with Jamcard, is pleased to announce our newest show, How I Got the Gig with Elmo Lovano. Jam Card is the music professional's online network. If you are a working pro, you want to join Jam Card, uh, you'll be even more of a working pro if you do. If you are an ambitious amateur looking to take the next step and turn pro, or just a diehard music fan like us, then you want to know all about Jam Card too. Take a moment after today's show and go listen to How I Got the Gig with Elmo Lovano. More about Jam Card and lots of other great rock and roll podcast content can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com or pantheonpodcast.com. Come on down. Finally, and this is the one that matters the most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend all about us. Thank you. Okay, business handled. We are good. Gentlemen, hit it. Just about 50 years ago, January 30th, 1969 to be exact, John, Paul, George, and Ringo and Billy Preston set up on the roof of the Apple Records building to play what would end up being the final live appearance by the Beatles, the now legendary rooftop concert. Over the course of 42 minutes, they played five songs spread out across nine takes. The impromptu rooftop concert was the culmination of a a movie-slash-album project with the working title of Get Back. It was the easiest and obvious option to all the crazy ideas proposed on where to play. Get Back as project was supposed to be exactly that, the Beatles getting back to their roots as a working rock band. Uh, Looking back 50 years on, we can see it was a desperate and ultimately failed effort to restore unity, even as business disputes and personal chaos threatened to destroy the band. The idea was create an honest, back-to-basics album, uh, free from the studio wizardry that had dominated their recent work, and at the same time, maybe recreate some of that us-against-the-world camaraderie the Beatles had for each other back in those early days in Liverpool. It wasn't a bad idea, but as it turned out, the experience pushed the Beatles to the point of disintegration. But they needed an ending for the film, so on a chilly Thursday afternoon, the Beatles plus Billy Preston climbed the five stories to the top of their Apple Corps headquarters and played their last concert together. The album and film were ultimately released in May 1970 as Let It Be, their swan song. As soon as the first song kicked off... Foot traffic in the Tony Upscale Mayfair district came to a halt. People, many of them office and shop workers on their lunch break, stopped in their tracks and looked up in amazement. A large crowd gathered in the street below. Up top, there was a film and sound crew, the musicians themselves, and only four people in attendance. One of those four people is our guest today, Mr. Ken Mansfield, who was the U.S. manager for Apple Records. Ken wrote a book about it. It's called The Roof, the Beatles' final concert, and it was published in November of 2018. We'll talk with Ken about the book, about his life in the music business, and of course, about the concert on The Roof and what it felt like to witness history. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, please rattle your jewelry for Ken Mansfield. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Ken Mansfield. How are you doing today? I'm doing great now that I'm here. So, hey, um, you know, I, I just finished reading your book. And, uh, you know, we are coming up on the 50th anniversary of the events that or the event, I should say, that took place on January 30th, uh, 1969. And after reading it, uh, I, I was struck by a sense of. Uh, the band, uh, you know, formerly known as the Beatles, unquestionably the most legendary band of the rock and roll age, are quickly moving into mythological territory. Let's face it: as far as history goes, these guys will be on par to Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky. I mean there's been so much written about them uh, from just about every angle and every detail, all about, um, you know, mostly facts from the obvious to the mundane. But your book is really just a personal reflection on living in a surreal time with these four guys living a surreal life.
0: Yeah. And I love it. What you just said, I've said that several times that they're going to be remembered as Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff or, they're that that important to our history of music
1: yeah uh and and and, and even more like like uh you know, like a Michelangelo or, um, uh, or Da Vinci, because yeah. they, they were, st- you know, it wasn't just music. There's so much yeah. that goes along with them, uh, yeah. beyond that. But, uh, you know, you were lucky enough to actually witness, uh, a, a bit of history. Um, and, you know, before we go too deep into January 30th, 1969 on, uh, uh, in the spot, uh, three Saville row in London, um, I want to know a little bit more about how you went from being uh, uh, dirt poor in Idaho to walking the halls of Capitol Records in Hollywood. Well, if I could –
0: I have thought about this so many times. I don't know how I came – Got from those Indian reservation lands in northern Idaho to on that roof—it's just a mystery to me. Uh, you could be as simple as that was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I think part of the reason that this happened was my own naivete, which is, I think was the absolute best part of be- my success in the business. But um, it was just a—they say if your heart is on something, and your mind and body is doing something else, your heart will win out. And music was always a deep part of my my feelings and my being. And uh, I graduated college with a degree, a Bachelor of Science degree in foreign trade. I ended up working at... And classified for the Saturn Surveyor Space Program, doing time, cost, budget, and projection analysis. And But I had my music thing, and I was had a group, and we were becoming rather successful in Southern California.
1: Oh, so you did play music. You, you grew up yeah. uh, not only appreciating music, but playing it yeah. as well which was a natural thing when you're in
0: a fraternity, a bunch of guys get together and pretty soon you're yeah. playing for beer. And the next thing you know, you're on stage. The next thing you know, but uh, anyway, know so well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, during this time of touring on weekends and things, I ran into kept running into this guy from Capitol, was shopping for bands. And one day he just one night, he just said, have you ever thought about going to work for a record company? And I went, yeah, my dreams, you know? And he said, well, uh, there's a job opening at Capitol. Uh, could I put you in for the job and I'll sponsor you, sponsor you? Well, the guy was Bill Wagner. He was the manager of the four freshmen who back in those days to me was the Beatles. Cause I th- you know,
1: anyway. Oh yeah. They, yeah. That was, they were, they, they were influential group uh, back then. They were in yeah. fact, Brian Wilson. Yeah. Uh, Harmony band of Brian Wilson's big uh, insp- so- inspiration. Right.
0: And the reason Brian Wilson signed with Capital was because that's where the four freshmen were. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I interviewed against 30 guys with experience in the business. I had none, and I got the job. Now, my job was district promotion manager at Capital Records, which means I worked with the artists, went to their concerts, did their pub PR just when they were on tour. This band, the Beatles, comes comes through town, and that was my job. So Now,
1: you can't just say, oh, this band, the Beatles, comes through <laughs> yeah. town. I'm sure you knew who they were before they I, showed up on your doorstep, right? Well,
0: now, this is interesting because I was working with so many bands and stuff, and the Beatles were big, but— Okay, I just thought it was going to be another band in time. I thought this was going to come and go like everything else does.
1: Yeah, cuz that, and- that is kind of the expectation for yeah. especially the pop music of the time is that, you know, you you were going to have a, you know, a career of uh, a couple of weeks to maybe a year yeah. or two. Yeah.
0: So, the and I didn't quite get it. Okay, maybe I'll have you cut this part out, but I didn't quite get it about the Beatles at the time. So, when I started oh, working Oh, you were on-
1: absolutely, you were a- actually admitting that,
0: huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> because I'm going to turn it around, because 50 years later, I get it. Yeah, so, well, let us hope so. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wasn't in awe of them. So we start working together, and here I'm the suntan guy that's starting to let his hair grow long with a Cadillac convertible, house in the Hollywood Hills with a pool. Which, think about it, when they were growing up and trying to make their bones. Oh, in that's Liverpool. A, oh, and yeah. They they were just fascinated with the whole California thing. So, oh, they
1: they, they, they were, uh, uh, you know, they, they've they admitted that, uh, you know, they were all in love with America. Yeah. Yeah, in so anything, now, the West I'm, or California, of course, it's even better. Yeah, yeah, you were. And you
0: were I happened to goal. be, a, I happened to be a young guy their age, because mm. everybody else, because they were so famous, they were working with the lords of EMI or the chairman of the board of Cable Industries and all these suits. And now they're working with an executive who's a young guy their age. And so, uh, on the second tour, they invited me up the house to spend just hang out with them. They had a day, a day off. Yeah, the sixty-six we, tour, the, right?
1: Oh, no, uh, this that was a, a 65 tour, 65 Oh, tour. Yeah. yeah. Been in the canyon. Maybe yeah. it was the first tour. Yeah.
0: Uh, anyway, uh, so we're hanging around the pool and just having a good time. So now I thought, you know, I'm in. We're buds, you know. We spoke yeah. together yeah. twice in <laughs> two years. I didn't hear a word. I thought, well, I guess I was kind of – I was a flash in the pan, and those guys are going strong. But during that time, I had really moved up to higher positions in capital. And out of the blue – uh, Stanley Gordico, the president of Capital Industry, calls me upstairs and said, Ron Cass, the president of Apple, just called, and they're going to set up Apple Records. and They want me to come to London and, and work with them in doing the launch and setting up the label. <laughs>
1: uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about your life in the music business after okay. your stint with Apple. Um, because uh, I want I want to introduce you properly to uh, to our fans, the diggers here. Okay, that you know you went on to work for MGM, and then right. you you really had a lot to do with the birth of out the outlaw country scene. Yeah, and I talk pl- talk a little bit about that before we dive completely into okay. the Beatles. Okay, because if you say, well, what was
0: your most exciting thing? It was the Beatles. But Waylon Jennings and the L, a band, that's something we started from scratch. Mm-hmm. The Beatles were already famous. But it started out, you know, with Waylon playing in bars. They have the screen up so the beer bottles don't hit you when the band, when people start throwing <laughs> All back. of the Blues Brothers, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, to the point to where uh, we... Uh, we're being rejected. Uh, people wouldn't play our records because there was no format for outlaw country. To the point, one day there were outlaw format radio stations, yeah, and uh, yeah. we went from that to uh, being rejected to just something caught on with the young people a lot and with a lot of people. And uh, next thing, we're selling out, you know, major major concerts. But it was being with something from the beginning and hanging with it, Waylon. Uh, Waylon just didn't care whether you liked him or not. He knew what he did.
1: Well, he'd and, been around for a while by then.
0: Yeah. You know, oh yeah. Buddy he, Holly's
1: suffered, band and all that. So. Yeah. And he'd suffered a lot
0: with, you know, Nashville making him do what he didn't want to do. But then when I came along the LA producer.
1: Yeah. Talk to uh, Willie Nelson about
0: that, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so we did, uh, RCA said, no, you can't have a Los Angeles producer. And Waylon, uh, just walked out of the office. I flew him out to L.A. We brought the band out there. We cut in Armin Steiner's Sound, uh, sound Labs, where all the, you know, next door is Olivia Newton-John and and Gary Wright and, uh, and all these other acts. And uh, we cut the album out there. Waylon flies back to Nashville, walks into uh, Chet Atkins' office and lays the tapes down on Chet's desk and said, this is my next album. And Chet said, "We well, are supposed to produce here. And Waylon he said, Oh, let me say it again. This is my <laughs> next, next album. And walked out. Well, anyway, the album went number one three times that year, it was the album of the year, all that. So I was a part of that. And I ended up, I did produce Willie, I did produce Tom Paul and Jesse, and the, you know, those, that group of people. And that was to me, was accomplishment.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty special time. Very, yeah. very influential uh, and helped shape uh, country into kind of what it is today. You know, it's a funny yeah. thing. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, rock's dead on the radio. I, and I tell them, well, I don't know, go listen to the country stations and you'll find plenty of you know, classic rock uh, these but, days, you know. So. And of
0: course in the country, everybody, every man tries to either sing like Waylon Jennings or George Jones yeah, or of Merle. There's like just a, Merle. There just a right. few people that they, they and tried to and left
1: it, <laughs> yeah yeah all right so let's get out of country and back over to the, okay. to the, to the Beatles here uh uh because I do I do want to spend most of our time on your book the roof yep. the Beatles final concert um and I want to begin with the epilogue uh correct me if I'm wrong but it sounded like writing this book uh was to help exercise some leftover demons
0: no it just uh it was an evolution to where I ended up afterwards. Of just what the importance in life. There could be nothing more important in the music business than being with the Beatles and doing that. Yeah. But when you when I got older and thought about all that, I just uh, realized that this is all wonderful and that's all great. It's all beautiful, and I was proud and happy to do it. But when you're kind of uh, left, you know, afterwards when you walk walk away. The thing about me is, a music business, and I walked away from each other at the same time, so it was a very mutual... <laughs> yeah, I became...
1: mid-80s, I think uh, you did go to Nashville and things didn't yeah. quite work out the way you'd hoped.
0: Yeah, no, it really didn't. Uh, but yeah, I was just me talking about me and just trying to put a perspective on life in general. So I got, got a little full philosophical there. How did you react to that after the others stuff?
1: I, You know, I, I took it like... It, it was like you were at D-Day and you know, when you've been at D-Day, what, what, yeah. what else are you going to do in your life? I mean, <laughs> is anything going to match D-Day? You know, you were at yeah. D-Day, you know, that's, yeah. and you know, and uh, you know, let's face it, uh, this, uh, this final performance um, by uh, you know, the Fab Four, um, yeah. you know, it, it is iconic. Uh, there's no other way to look at it. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was done in a way that, that, created uh, a, a lot of mystery uh, at the time uh it ends up being the last performance uh, of of the of the four and um you know it just kind of grows into you know more mythology as time goes on like i I, I, yes. I said at the beginning here so i can imagine for somebody like yourself of which there were only i think 20 people on the roof on the actual apple uh building uh roof um you know it's you know you you know they're Plenty of days where you just go, wow, that was just, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's like seeing Alexander the Great, uh, you know, <laughs> at, at a period of time, or, or you know, yeah. the, you know, the, 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 the assassination of Julius Caesar, or, you know, or you yeah. know, just these these huge, huge moments in yeah. history that you just know. 2,000 yeah. years from now, people are going to be going, well, don't forget about this. Uh, you know, yeah, and I, and, you know, you were one of those people. So, yeah. so um, uh, you know, the, the book really is about the events leading up to the last public performance by all four Beatles. It then concludes with reminiscence uh, with and about some of the people who are actually in attendance with you. Um, it's, it, it, as I just said, it's a big moment in music and cultural history. But let's set the stage uh, on that rickety roof. Tell us about first meeting the Beatles as part of the Capitol team. Um, I think you said that was first in 1965, uh, and it was around the Hollywood Bowl show. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it was the Hollywood Bowl show. It was the second time they were there, and and, uh, their second tour of America.
1: So what did you get... think of them as a performing group? There's a lot of, you know, Keith Richards just I... recently came out saying, ah, the Beatles sucked as a live uh, performance. I totally disagree with this, knowing what I know about the Beatles. The, of course, you know, you have the Malcolm Gladwell use of the 10,000 hours and using the Beatles and the Hamburg experience for that, which, you know, uh, you know, I'm a working musician. I, You know, I know what it takes to, to put it together. And let me tell you, 10,000 hours is a lot of fucking hours.
0: <laughs> I know. My, uh, that, that was partially right in, in that impression. Be- at this point, the Beatles, they couldn't be heard. And, uh, yeah, the, the sound
1: uh, reinforcement just doesn't, is yeah. not equal to the task of the size of the, um, uh, the arenas they needed to put them in on and stadiums.
0: And you take them out of the cavern. Here's a band that played thousands of thousands of hours, just rocking out, just being into it and being heard. And now all of a sudden they're up there and they can't even. Uh, I I don't know this for sure, but uh, they said something. they would just start making f- f- funny lyrics or just you know chatting amongst themselves. And yeah, because
1: nobody could hear it anyway. Right? Nobody cared, Yeah. yeah. That,
0: they didn't really care to hear. I think they just wanted to be there and be part of it. So uh, my impression of them as a band didn't happen then. But I'll tell you, uh, I'm jumping ahead. But when I was actually in Apple, and George invited me down to sit in on the Let It Be sessions. And there was my old friend, Billy Preston, who had worked with the Capitol. He and I just kind of started out together at Capitol. I'm sitting next to him on the floor next to his keyboard, and this band just blew me away because they were just running things down. They were writing. They were rehearsing. They were jamming and just figuring out what to do. And they were really a good band. And, you know, they were just a great band, a good rock and roll band, and uh, that's my impression of it. and the second impression on that came when they did the roof concert, which we can get into
1: yeah in a, in a, in a bit yeah so did, were you at the 66 uh, f- uh, candlestick show the final show?
0: No, I was at the uh, next to the final one. That hey, when that was the stadium yeah and uh, there was a big difference when I worked with them in 65 it was still really fresh to them in a way but in 66 it was a definite change it wasn't as funny there wasn't much camaraderie between us it was just more work and just more serious and you know 66
1: well they'd just gotten off of that uh, far east tour uh, in the manila incident and all that yeah. as well
0: and they'd had all this stuff that happened in atlanta and the bible the book burnings. Yeah. oh
1: that's right yeah john's uh comment about big being bigger than jesus and all that yeah
0: and all you know all these things and by that point uh They were just, I think, pretty tired. So I didn't realize that I saw the next to last concert that they were going to fall after Candlestick. I think Candlestick is the only concert that didn't make money for the promoter. Oh, really? (laughs) If you can
1: imagine that. Well, I, last- I, actually, I think I have read that there were still tickets left to be sold, yeah. uh, and you know, um, uh, you know, maybe the 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 sheen was uh, was wearing off a little bit. Uh, obviously, by '66, you know, you're starting to have uh, American bands that are of equal stature, uh, yeah. uh, uh, of the Beatles here, uh, or at least coming up, uh, coming up behind them very quickly. So, you
0: know, a local
1: gig in San Francisco, there was a lot of music coming out of San there, Francisco. And certainly at that time. Yeah. Right at that yeah. time. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so uh, let's talk about the creation of Apple Corps. Uh, okay. why did the Beatles decide they needed to form their own record company? Uh, and how did that work with uh, capital EMI?
0: well people didn't realize that when the beatles started to want to set up apple they thought well capital automatically had apple records but you know apple records was a company it was a multifaceted company and uh, to get apple we had to compete against everybody else we had the beatles but apple was a separate entity
1: and you, so, had, you mean to compete uh, for their uh, for the product distribution. In, in in distribution in, in the united yeah. states right,
0: right. And so we had to compete with all the other labels. Now, we did have one kind of good advantage. We had history with them. Uh, there was relationships already. But we could offer them something that nobody could offer them. And if the Beatles would bring Apple to Capitol, we could allow The Beatles were under contract with Capital and EMI, and they were not – they couldn't be on Apple. They were on Capital. So we could allow them to release their records under the Apple – label and so that they were on apple records and actually the accounting numbers were still capital numbers but they were on their label
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is the one thing we could offer them because otherwise they would have had a record company distributed by uh, cbs but they would still they would be on you know capital so this was the thing we had to offer to them and that's how we got them on apple
1: and then, what, what did uh, Gordikov and the other executives think of the idea when that was first presented to them?
0: A battle? Yeah. Oh, are you kidding? I mean, th- now in Capital, there are a lot of suits there, and they just thought those guys were just a bunch of scruffy rock and rollers. <laughs> We've got Capital turned them down, what, three times or something? Right. Before- before they actually signed him. but Oh, you mean, uh,
1: well, originally, originally. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'm talking about the Apple core, the idea of forming a business and being a separate label. I mean, I guess uh, like Frank Sinatra had done that with Reprise uh, before. Yeah. So it wasn't completely out of the blue, right?
0: No. But actually, uh Gordico really liked the band and the band loved Gordico yeah. was an unusual man he was the finest man I've ever met and they they liked Stan they called him Stan they didn't call him Mr. Gordico they called him Stan and uh, I think uh, they just understood each other and it was a natural thing again they had history they didn't know the you know Clive Davis and the other people like that like they they knew Stan so
1: so it was. This is what the boys want to do. Um, we're going to do it. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, can you imagine? Can you imagine what our relationship
0: would be like with them if they were over at CBS and we had them as artists on Capitol and all this stuff would start mixing together? Well, you can't sing backgrounds on yeah. some, a CBS label, and you, it would have just been a nightmare. It really would, and uh, you know that it, the relationship would would really fell apart. Even if we didn't want them, I think we had to have them. Mm-hmm. which we did one but
1: yeah I think uh yeah it's quoted in your book uh, where at one time uh, uh, kortikoff says that it's like 50 percent of the capital business yeah. Yeah, that's 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 scary time. If you're if you're a well, <laughs> if you have a company,
0: you, you certainly don't have one client no. to sit your business. If they walk, you know, you're in trouble. So, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, you know, eventually, as we know, you know, uh, uh, their existence was already tenuous uh, by that time and, 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 and you know, uh, deteriorates over the next couple of years. So you get tapped uh, as the uh, liaison between capital and Apple. was that right?
0: No, I actually was uh, made U.S. manager of Apple Records by a mutual thing between Ron Cass and Gordico that I would work for. And the thing that Capital did, I also oversaw other independent labels. Like we had Harvest out of England. We had Rick Hall's Fame Records. Mm-hmm. We had you know, different labels. So I still oversaw those labels as director of independent labels. But I worked for Apple.
1: But and, so you uh, did have two jobs. You did work yeah. for for capital and you work for yeah. Apple, right? Yeah. So does yeah. that mean you got two paychecks?
0: No, in fact.
1: <laughs> That's too bad, isn't it? <laughs>
0: if you knew what I made back then, uh, it was, you know, it just was hardly nothing in the business, even though I had the probably the primo job in the whole industry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, all, I, I, it's all
1: about status. It was all about status, yeah. right?
0: <laughs> I had the fight to fly first class, you know, but going to England and stuff was, That was from L.A.'s a long flight. But anyway. Uh,
1: So so you mentioned Ron Cass. uh, Let's talk a little bit about him. Yeah. Uh,
0: I loved Ron Cass. Ron Cass to me was a consummate businessman. He was the classiest guy I ever met. He uh, was a sharp guy. Uh, When Cass was there, everything was light and happy and fun and exciting. Um, I would say between Gordico and Cass – those are the two people I learned more from than anybody in the in the industry. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, before or since,
0: yeah, oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. never before, never before I had met a, a executives like them. Uh, Cass had this ability. He was this genteel, uh, refined uh, person that spoke. I don't know how many languages. You go to a restaurant, no matter what it was he spoke the language of the restaurant, you know. And uh, but uh, Cash just. Uh, epitomized everything and the thing about him was he would be gentle and business wise. But I walked into William we walked into William Morse one day or to make a deal, something to do with the Beatles. And when it came down to business, I saw a change in him what I had Hyde thing where when it got down to stuff, I'd never seen a man that could be so mean and tough when it came to negotiation and business. So mm-hmm. that's another thing I saw. He knew how to compartmentalize where he was and what he had to get done during any given thing.
1: Right, right, right. So uh, in July of 68, you fly over to London for your first yeah. meetings. Um, you know, tell us about your first impressions uh, of this new company that everybody <laughs> called Apple Core. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you know, Peter and Gordon, I used to work with Peter and Gordon. Yeah, I Peter up Asher, Peter,
1: uh yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. At the airport. Now Peter is now with Apple and I get off the head the of AR. Uh head of A Yeah. And I get off the plane. Now who's picking me up? He's <laughs> Peter Yeah. Uh, so by the time I get there, because I I'd, I'd, I'd met Cass and worked with him before, worked with Peter and Gordon, a uh, couple other people. And so, but when the day I walked in the Apple building, it was kind of, I already felt at home because mm. I had, you know, I had relationships there already. And uh, you walked off Savo Ro- Probably one of the most staged, uh, upscale streets in in London, and uh, bankers and tailors and very wave Mayfair district, which was a very expensive area. And you walked off that staged street into you close the door, and it was just chaos. <laughs> you know? I mean, everything was going on there. Uh, there may be a beetle here, a beetle there. There was Hell's Angels, Harley Christus, uh Derek Taylor. Uh, You know, the champagne going all the time and a full-time chef that could make you whatever you want. It was just, I don't know, it was just madness. And it was lovely madness. It was fun. It was exciting.
1: Sounds Uh, like a Silicon Valley campus uh, uh, these days. Yeah. <laughs> Except uh,
0: there was a little bit more heart than that, I think.
1: Yeah. It- yeah, yeah. I it was, it was about the music. It was definitely it was about- uh, this uh, This moment in time, which, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, give peace a chance, uh, love and all that, and uh, think that this generation was going to change the world uh, out there. And, and they, they certainly believed it uh, at that time.
0: Yes. Which was part of the downfall. I know of Apple because you just can't be that philanthropic with a business like that. Right. Uh, and uh, so the intentions were great. The structure of the building was something uh, – the company was something that major corporations developed later on in time to show you how ahead of time they were thinking. Yeah, like a multimedia uh, company. It was, bringing all their assets and all their oper- uh activities into one under one roof. So the publication was there, the music was there, the concert, you know, everything was in their building under their control.
1: It was just uh, maybe uh, a little uh, too ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a sweet spot in business, as, as you well know. You know, if you hit it too soon, uh, nobody's going to understand what you're, yeah. what you're really up to. And then later on, people go, wow, you know, that idea you had, that was really smart. <laughs> and it's too bad you didn't make any money. And all these other people did. You know, uh, it's usually it's the exploiters that uh, that are the ones that uh, come out afterwards and take the pieces and put it together at the right time. Yeah,
0: you can't save the world and make sure your records are shipped on time at the you know at the same time. So no,
1: you have to choose one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah one. Well, that's definitely definitely true. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Mayfair district, and that uh, uh, you know this is this is a, a very high rent uh, part of of oh, London, uh, and had been uh, for a long time. Uh, and I, I I wanted to talk a little bit about you know Three Savile Road itself and some of the famous personalities that uh, that lived there.
0: Yeah. Oh, in in the book that I wrote about, uh, it was a lot of history with, uh, Oh, what would you say, military people, as we say? Yeah, somewhere
1: uh, around the Napoleonic you know. age, it seems to uh, <laughs> yeah. be quite the center of, uh, yeah. of of town. I mean, you have uh, uh, the Duke of Wellington, who famously defeated exactly. Napoleon. Uh, you have Lord Nelson, who's uh, visiting his mistress, uh, Lady Hamilton, there, uh, and then General Ross, uh, who burned down Washington D.C. Uh, in <laughs> the, during the Battle of eighteen twelve. You know, did you know all that when you walked in the door? No, I didn't know that. But here's
0: the thing is I sensed something. You walked in that building and something was beyond you could just feel that presence. And then when I started doing research on that part for the for the book, as I realized, no wonder you could feel that history in that building. Mm-hmm. You just something there. And I think the Beatles were attracted to that. I think they want, they were legitimate businessmen right now. They wanted to be, uh, they wanted to be proper and classy and they wanted to do things right. So they go to a very proper street in a building with great history and they set up their big proper business. You know, Mm -hmm. it was, and now I mean all that using the word proper in a very good way that they wanted to be very astute in what they did. uh, uh, they were just a bunch of crazy rock and rollers, you know, just trying to move in their neighborhood and mess everybody up.
1: No, they 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 wanted to be proper English yeah. gentlemen. Yes, they did. Yeah,
0: yes. and they really fancied being businessmen. The, we they said in the meeting once. They said, "Well, we have accomplished everything else we could accomplish. We've been number one in everything. We have really no more new goals. We just, you know, so." Businessmen, when they would show up at our meetings, they would show up on time. Uh, It was almost like they had a little plastic thing in their pocket with the pens and pencils in it, you know. Mm -hmm. Very, the questions were very businesslike, very serious. Uh, Just, they were businessmen now.
1: But that's that's not too dissimilar to, you know, how they took uh, you know, the job itself, the recording uh music. It's it's well known that, you know, they were they that's how they worked. This was a job. It was a you know, they, they, they it was almost like having a lunch pail and a thermos and coming that's in clocking right. in and uh, you know, doing your eight hours and clocking out.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why towards the end, like the let it be sessions when that work ethic started mm-hmm. going away. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: So you, uh, you came over the uh, the, the middle of, of, uh, of 68, and then, you know, what, what were your duties? I, I think, actually, I think your first duty was taking Hey Jude and trying to figure out if that was going to work as an A-side single, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, if you can Who imagine- would think that that would work as an A-side single? I just can't imagine.
0: <laughs> if you can imagine this, because they had just uh- – moved in the Apple building and had painted all white and had green carpet, but they didn't have furniture and stuff in there yet when we first started meeting. And, uh, so there was, we were deciding what the first four records were going to be. And, uh, it was pretty, pretty clear what it was going to be, except for the A side of the Beatles record. Mm -hmm. So they had Hey Jude and, and Revolution. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Sitting there on the floor, and they had a big sound system in one of the rooms and a table with uh, drinks and stuff on it on the other end of the room. And we were playing Hey Jude over and over again. And they knew that in America, because they'd done their homework, that a two, nothing would get paid, played over two and a half minutes, basically. That was the rule if you want to have a, get single. It was the both,
1: old rules. Bob Dylan had kind of broken that a little yeah. bit and a, and a few others, but. Old well, MacArthur Park also. Oh, MacArthur Park, say, you're right. Yeah. That's, actually, that's like eight minutes long, right?
0: And uh, Baker Street and all these things. But anyway, Paul wanted to play it by the rule. And at that time, the Beatles could have burped on a record and had a number one hit. It didn't really matter what they did. Right. But anyway, he just was having problems getting past that. So finally, I said, look, let me do this. Uh, I'll fly back to America, but I'll hopscotch on the way back to L.A., and I'll go to uh, Jim Hilliard at uh, Jim Hilliard at WFIL in Philadelphia, and Jim Dunlap down at WQAM in Miami, and I'll go to St. Louis, you know, and then end up in L.A., and just I'll play it. If you'll trust me with the record, I'll play it and see what the uh, music directors, the main guys that pick records think, and every one of them fell on the floor, so... Uh, I ended up with Dick Moreland in L.A., at KRLA, and uh, so I called Paul and said, you know, we got to go with this. And uh, that was all he needed, and away we went. And I don't think Revolution—I don't know. I didn't really think Revolution would have been a great opening record for Apple anyway.
1: That's a debatable point. I mean, both are are great songs. Uh, You know, obviously Revolution's a little bit harder and harsher. You yeah. know, uh, you've got the uh, the caustic wit of uh, of John on one side, and and you've got the sweetness of Paul on the other. In uh,
0: yeah, uh, but see, I was a, I was a marketing guy too for the company, and I needed we needed a record that was accessible yeah. to yeah. large, you know, yeah. that we could hit everybody with that record. Right. So it had that that element about it. It
1: it's did. It, oh yeah,
0: the biggest, the biggest single. Yeah, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a sing along uh, to boot. Yeah, you, know, you yeah. can't beat it. You just can't beat it. So, uh, well, good for you. Good choice. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for getting that out there for us. So we certainly <laughs> appreciate it. So, so yeah. It's an amazing song. So then um, 1969, uh, you know, the band decides to begin recording and filming what becomes Let It Be. Well, and, and I believe that is the original idea. They were going to film and record at the same time. And right. know, is, is that is that the way the way it went down? Yeah,
0: and it turned out to be uh, too many things at one time because they they'd come off the White Album. They were burned out, you know, from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, to take on, you know, Paul was just like I guess a, like a hyperactive. He's kind of kid. an
1: energizer bunny. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's almost eighty and he's still an energizer yeah. bunny, and he's
0: still yeah. But anyway, then he and, and George, I think, especially, uh, he was just too much, too much, doing too, too many things, re- rehearsing for the appearance and the album and the film and and just done it on and all this kind of stuff and he said let's just make a record or let's just you know do one thing here
1: yeah and the but- idea was to kind of strip off uh the psychedelia uh the uh the uh added arrangements uh that you know george martin was uh, was famously instrumental in uh and try to get back to uh you know uh, a raw beatles sound right
0: yeah, George said I produced the record and Phil Spector overproduced it. So, <laughs> you know, but and when you when I heard let it you know let it be uh, naked, yeah, I just boy that just threw me right back to being there because that was exactly what they had intended in the first place, and I'm glad Paul finally you know got got to do that. So
1: I, I have to ask you about the dynamics in the band at the time. Um, I, you know, it's a well-worn subject. All the fingers pointing at scapegoats uh, as yeah. to some singular cause uh, that broke up the band. And, and I think, you know, granted, we could spend all day discounting yeah. many of them, uh, except to say that it was a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you did get to know them in 65, uh, when, when, when times were, were great. Yeah. Uh, and then you saw a bit of a change in 66. Yeah. So, you know, what did you see as you, you know, first went to work for them, uh, in 68?
0: Um, it was by that time, uh, Yoko was on the scene mm-hmm. and, uh, instead of being with four guys, you were with five, five people. They were pretty good at uh, when I was with them. Now, I wasn't with them on a day-to-day, everyday business. No. So, some guys there, you know, yeah. really know that kind of thing. But I think that's what makes a lot of my opinion pretty valid because I saw them as, let's say, an outsider where I would come in and I would see their general appearance. And they were starting, my observation, they were starting to become individuals more. That that band, band thing wasn't there like it was... Everything, you know, they were getting more involved in more things. When, like, when Billy Press and I were in the studio with him, you knew that they weren't going to get into bad arguments and stuff in front of other people. I think they've been taught that growing up. Uh, my mom used to say, don't show your butt, you know, yeah. <laughs> when other people around. And uh, so I didn't ever see that bickering, I never saw the bad part. I know it was different with Yoko there, and people say, "Well, Yoko broke up the band." And just what based, you know, what you just said is they give her way too much credit because there was so many things happening. Yeah, because the the Apple thing was really starting to become something they hadn't intended. Uh, they were starting to each have their own individual ideas about their music, what they wanted to do, and especially in George's case, and uh, they had wives now. And, um, you know, there was just all these different things. And also, uh, you know as well as I do, if you want to break up a band, any band, give them a number one hit record. And that's usually the, the minute they have big success is when they start falling apart because they can't handle it. And these guys have had so many, you know, uh, hit oh, records. Wow, a
1: giant string. Yeah, uh, the, the My gosh, string. they
0: were... They were still together after that many years, which is another great accomplishment in rock and roll. So to me, my analysis is just time. It was time for them to break up, you know?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of— We didn't want them to. No, of course. We as fans uh, didn't want them to. I, You know, I kind of think that— You know, had had John lived and uh, and and George, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think sooner or later they would have gotten, you know, back together. You know, bands now do this sort of, hey, let's get together. We do a tour. Now we go and do our own thing and we get back together and do a tour and things like that. Do you think I'm wrong? Do you think they No, I
0: think I think in time they would have gotten together. I don't think they would like describe it like you said, though. They were let's put the band together and have a big successful tour. It wasn't that kind of. There's no way I, that they wouldn't have come back together over time. Yeah. And after John died, uh, somebody asked George about, well, will the band? You know, they're not going to replace the guitar player in the band. They were the Beatles, those four guys. And George said, "Well, no, we'll we'll never put the band back together as long as John stays dead." Right. You know. And so uh, that kind of showed but how they felt about it. Because other bands would have replaced the guitar player, replaced the drummer. These were
1: four. No, 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 B- no, no, no. It's, uh, Similar to, you know, the, the, the Led Zeppelin thing who, you know, didn't, you know, broke up when, uh, when Bonzo, uh, died and, uh, you know, only reformed when, uh, when, uh, his son was able to, yeah. to play drums yeah. with them. So, but I, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, there, there is the story of the Saturday Night Live, uh, possibility where, uh, you know, Lauren Michaels had offered that check, and John and Paul are supposedly watching this on on live, and said, "Hey, we should go down there." And uh, uh, you know, yeah. so you know, uh, you know,
0: well, I think. Remember, he said they were going to give him. He was they were going to give him a thousand dollars, and they didn't have to share it with <laughs> Ringo if they didn't want to. Yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 Almost, almost, but you know, I, I think you're right. I think you know, I, I yeah, I don't know, you know, what the incarnation would have looked like, but I yeah. certainly feel because of. The the closeness of, uh, of the four of them, uh, from Liverpool and then having to go through what they went through. Uh, like we said at the beginning, a surreal life, uh, when things calmed down, you know, the sound reinforcement had gotten, uh, you know, uh, exceptional, uh, they, you know, they, they could, they could certainly, uh, you know, decide one day they're going to play Hyde Park and fill that thing in a, in a heartbeat at any time, even today, even today. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. So as we talked about, um, you know, you mentioned um, Phil Spector and that he overproduced uh, Let It Be. But, you know, I think, you know, George Martin was kind of on the outs uh, during this thing, right? And so Glenn Johns was brought in, right? Yeah. Yeah,
0: and like during the Let It Be sessions, uh, it really didn't seem to be, to me, I don't know who was producing it, you know. Glenn was in there and George was in there, but it seemed like the band was just creating
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, the tapes were rolling. You walk in the, the control room there and there's walls were just stacked with, with two inch tapes because they kept the tapes rolling all the time, practically while they're doing it. And so, and then Paul would say, well, let's, let's hear that. Well, I don't know. Hmm.
1: Hmm. So, uh, but I think your your big point is is that it was really the band was producing it and they were yeah. trying to get back to something.
0: Yeah, uh, exactly.
1: Hence the name of the original project Get Back. Yeah, yeah exactly so uh but mm-hmm. a lot of people come out of that i mean uh you know glenn johns goes on to be uh you know quite uh quite the lucrative producer out there alan parsons is the second alan engineer Pars- uh, on there yep. it goes on to produce dark side of the moon uh <laughs> you know which may be the greatest engineered album ever made uh you know so yeah. a lot of a lot of people are in that building uh, along with you uh yeah. and and then of course you you know you mentioned and I want to dive into it a little bit more is you know Billy Preston uh yeah. coming in and adding uh the keys uh to uh to that uh, sure um you know it, uh, it dispelled uh, some of the tension i'm sure uh with uh with the the other guys uh, given uh what was going on but i i i just can't imagine that they they wouldn't all just appreciate the sheer joy that uh, billy would bring i'm sorry <laughs> I drifted off there first. I <laughs> did. I take you back I, in I, time. I was to... <laughs>
0: you were talking about this. I was just imagining uh, Billy in the in the room, and I, I really did. I drifted back. he's the only person they ever put his name on a label with him, as you know, as part of the band. Yeah. And uh, um, he, Billy would sit there, and they would play something and he would look around me and his eyes get big as saucer and go, Oh my gosh, did you hear that? And then, you know, and then they'd turn to him for him to do something. And he'd put something down, they go, wow, they'd kind of look at look at him, you know. So there's a great uh playing off of each other, great camaraderie there. And uh it, yeah, Billy was just a special person. Yeah. And I knew I knew him when he knew me when and we couldn't understand how we both end up in that room. Yeah. The the room of the universe and right. music you know, and we're sitting there and uh, we just couldn't believe that we were both there.
1: But, yeah. Miss him. Miss him. I'm sure you do uh, greatly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, the need for a concert. Uh, there there were a lot of ideas thrown out. I, I think th- there was no end to the film is basically what uh, what prompted.
0: This, that right? was that was supposed to be the, you know, the end of the film was for them to come back and play live together because mm. they had done yeah. it for years. And that was kind of the plan climax. And, um, my understand that there were deadlines and they were just running out of time and we had all the, these crazy ideas. Uh, they had crazy ideas. I was involved in looking for a, a place in the California deserts and or you there, in Coachella and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, something. Oh yeah, that'd be, yeah. Well, that would have been a foretelling. But anyway, um, uh, it just ran out of time. And so the the Beatles weren't really that excited about traveling and going away and hauling people with them and just doing all this stuff. And the roof was just, they ran out of time. Yeah. So it was a last minute decision, right? Yeah. yeah. About two two days before that, uh, I could hear construction going on. I just thought it was somebody remodeling their office, you know, Uh and, uh, but the, they had to, they had to support the roof there was probably maybe as many as 20 people up there the the, the actual where the planks were was probably a 12 by 20 you know uh, f- foot area
1: and where they could uh, put the equipment the the, uh, the recording equipment and the instruments right
0: and the sound and the sound stuff and so uh, uh, those of who were of us who were actually there were in that confined area now there are people off to the side of the building, uh, the roof, and then there were people on the thing, eventually things on the building next door. So the pictures are deceiving sometimes. there's it was mainly the Beatles and Billy, the four of us, uh, Yoko, Maureen, myself, and Chris O'Dell. We were the audience, by the way. And uh, we said that we got comp tickets because we <laughs> had to pay for it. But, uh, and then there was, you know, Michael and Lindsay Hogg, a uh, couple cameramen, and Alan Parsons and a couple. So there was just a very... Very small group that was right in the sweet spot, as you call it, of that that day, and uh, we were four to six feet away from them, Yoko and I, and and of course Kevin Harrington was up there, and Mal was up there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Basically, two days before, they decide they're going to do this. They build a makeshift uh, uh, stage uh, to, to, so just to make sure that everybody doesn't fall through the roof uh, in, yeah. into uh, uh, Peter's office. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, this is all so that they can perform this. Now, they must have known that they were going to create a stir there uh, on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Why right did, away. Why did we do it at
0: lunch hour when everybody's up and down the streets? Yeah. Right,
1: right, right. Uh, So they do five songs Uh, Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, I've Got a Feeling, uh, One After the 909, and uh, Dig a Pony. And some are recorded several times uh, because this is mostly intended uh, for the film, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And yet, totally. it's remained this seminal moment in rock and roll. I think the the actual uh, film. Uh, that, I think there's a 23 minute, yeah, 22 act, minutes actual yeah. version of uh, yeah. you know them, and I think it's, it's got get back on both the beginning and the end uh, yeah. before the Bobby show up and and shut everything down. So, uh, so and and I know um, uh, uh, Derek Taylor was not there that no. day. Uh, who handles PR, uh, and would, you know, you know, so I, did you ever talk to him about, was this planned to make this sort of this, uh, cultural thing without being a, you know, a, a staged event?
0: Well, nobody knew, you know. I mean, there were other people that could have come up there. I mean, Neil Aspinall has a dental appointment that day. Yeah, you know? a dental and, appointment,
1: yeah. yeah, Not an yeah, emergency and, dental appointment. No. Just a dental appointment.
0: <laughs> I don't think it was emergency. I know it was kind of – but anyway, uh, you know, and he was never more than 10 feet away from them, as, as Mal wasn't. And, and Derek is a consummate promotion guy to take – or PR guy to take advantage of a, the events happening. And he didn't come up. Uh, so there was a thing that I don't think people realized. nobody realized, none of us realized it was going to be the moment it was, it was almost another day at the office. It was just, this has got to be done. And, and, uh, you know, it was just so many things that were so exciting were happening so often. I don't think any of us realized.
1: Oh, I I I think there was one person who did, uh, and that's Chris O'Dell well chris had to be there she she
0: had to be there and if you know chris man if she had to be there she's going to be there no matter she,
1: she probably knew holy crap i got to figure out a way to get on that roof uh, and i love how you put that in the book that she really worked it
0: yeah and if she when the time she was up there she was afraid she was going to get pulled off too you know because she kind of wasn't supposed to be there but
1: yeah, uh, yeah, Anyway. Yeah. So and, you, uh, you mentioned you mentioned Maureen, uh, uh, Starkey is there, uh, Yoko is there. Uh, yeah. they, they were the, the two wives that were there, uh, yourself yeah. and Chris O'Dell are literally the audience. But somebody else that I, I, I want to bring up is Mal Evans because you were yeah. really close to, to Mal. And we we really have a soft spot for him as well, yeah. especially after reading, uh, you know, he was one of the, the guys pulled off the plane in Manila who thought he was going to die, uh, <laughs> you know. And and you know uh, everybody knows that uh, that when the Beatles picked Mal to kind of you know be their their yeah. their uh, their muscle, if you will, uh, he yeah. really was the right guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was. Um, Mal, I love Mal, and Mal. I tell you the reason that I did well with the Beatles is Mal gave me his approval from the start. And They trusted Mal, and it's almost like Mal said, "Ken's okay," you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was just. I had acceptance from all the guys because of Mal. I really believe it was because of Mal. Well, because we did get along, but Mal was the reason for that. And Mal uh, was this big, gentle giant, uh, totally dedicated. I've just never met anybody like him in my life. I was one of the last people to talk to him before he got killed uh, on the phone that night. Yeah, he was,
1: he was shot by the uh, L.A. sheriffs. Uh, yeah, right. you know, they didn't like to hurt himself, so they... Oh. they <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> so, yeah. Mm, that doesn't seem to work well, does it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's too bad. Um, it, you know, I, I've read the story. Uh, I've I read your account and, uh, you know, it, it, it's pretty much the, what everybody said is that, you know, he, um, he was despondent, uh, and, uh, uh, locked himself in, uh, in a bedroom, uh, and he, he did have a weapon with him, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the LA, um, uh, police are gonna come and, deal with it and uh, they dealt with it in the way the overreaction uh, that uh, is common in this country yeah. yeah yeah and uh and poor sweet mal is dead that's yeah that's horrible yeah well um so the concert which is barely a concert maybe we call it a performance uh was I think total of 43 minutes. 42. And what did you think? What, what, I mean, at the end, uh, when, when John asked if he'd passed the audition, I guess I should ask you, did he pass the audition?
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'd like to sum things up by just talking about from the moment, uh, coming up on the roof, coming out of the building, uh, a building of special people. It was again, like an just another day in a way at the office. And nobody had a feeling that that was gonna happen. And we came up on the roof, and uh, it was just happen chance I was there. Because of Mal, Mal said, come on up. If if he wouldn't have said that, I probably wouldn't have been up there. And so and Chris got up there, uh, of course, Yoko would naturally be there. So we were the audience of four people, and uh, we only people didn't have something, a reason for being there. But this happened and uh there was even my understanding that it was even not positive they were going to come out through that door it, it was like
1: oh really there. It, yeah. it, it may not have happened at all yeah was there and was there a dissension or concern uh earlier in the day that you knew about or well
0: i was in the, in the room they were using for what you'd call a dressing room before they went up and they were going over things and i just thought, in a way, it looked like they were a nervous band just getting ready to do an audition or something. And when uh, I learned later that there was just a lot of dissension going down. That's why things seemed uptight in the room. But when they got up there and when they started playing, and the one thing, if I take away anything from my time with everything to do with the Apple and the Beatles, is when they started playing, something happened, and Paul looked at John, or John looked over at Paul, and it was like they looked at each other and went, yeah, this is us. This is who we are. We've been mates forever. We've gone through everything together. And we're just a good band. And this is who we are. And that they rocked out that day. I think it took them back to the cavern. I think it, it, it was just they were together. And they just rocked out and had a great time. You notice how loose the thing was and just mm-hmm. how natural it was. And when they stopped and went down out of the building and the rest of us filed out, Nobody talked. I never, in fact, Chris and I didn't talk about it maybe
1: for 20 years later.
0: Because coming down, something happened. And I didn't. Right. I, did you know? I just,
1: did you know it was the end that this would never repeat itself? Or oh, that's the point. Nobody thought, "Wow, this is." The and last we're just time afraid to, to say it, you know. Yeah, wow.
0: no, this is the last time the Beatles are going to play together. They're going to break up after this. This is when everything's going to fall. You know, fall. This is going to be the end. It was just something happened here, and I couldn't almost assemble my thoughts. And uh, we went down and just went our separate ways. Went to our different offices. And that was it, and nobody had any idea it was probably going to become the most uh, most historical moments in rock and roll. And uh, I got on a plane the next day and uh, left.
1: And you did. So you 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 went back to uh, America the next day. Yeah, L.A. Yeah. Was that was that was that the last time you were at uh, an Apple as an employee?
0: As uh, well, no. Uh, you know, that was January, and I didn't till till the end of the year. So
1: okay, so you you were you had gone back and forth. It just it wasn't the last yeah. time. Again on the on the jet and, plane. Course,
0: Jack Oliver was the head of international, I guess he, at the time. He eventually became president, but uh, it was just really doing business after that. And uh, uh, George George and I spent a lot of time together because he was over in LA a lot, um, but. Anyway, that was it. And uh, the thing I just like to make as a point is, there were special people in a special building at a special time with a special band, and this will never happen again. Society will never be like that again. There won't be that Vietnam, the assassinations, the all the things that were going on, you know, in America in '68 and around then. It was just a time. The I think people needed the Beatles. I think they were a the diversion. I think they unified people because the mothers loved them and the kids loved them. And, you know, they were just—they were just something that was given to
1: us as a gift. I think for that time, oh, we will never see their like again. No, we won't. I appreciate your time with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock, Ken Mansfield. Uh, it's been great talking to you.
0: My, my absolutely my pleasure. And uh, you know more about the Beatles than I do. So.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh. <laughs> now, I know
0: a time period, but, you know, and, and a certain aspect of it. But when I be, meet people like Mark Lewis and, and these people, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Wherever.
1: Mark Lewis. Yeah. He's on He's on my list to, to interview. Definitely. You got so, it. So, so. He's a gentleman, too.
0: Real gentleman. so
1: well, hey, uh, uh we had fun today. It was great. Um you know, looking at this like I said the book is it's very personal. Uh it uh it's, it's this is not, you know, like a like a Lewison book where it's like, you know, yeah. no, it, this is the yeah. story and uh you know, it's canon. It's more uh, it's it's more of this uh you know, it's like a a hand of a ghost uh, coming back from, from time. And, and, and I, I really appreciated reading it that way. Uh, that, I thought that, that was great
0: idea. I want people to walk in the building with me and, and meet the other people that maybe you don't hear as much about, you know, and to get a feeling what it was like in there. And the pictures are just working pictures in the building that people can just get a feeling for what it was like to, uh, special people. It just, I wanted, to, and that's the one comment I keep getting. I, I people said I felt like I was there. Yeah. And so my job's accomplished on that.
1: Yeah, I I rewatched the the 22 minute uh, concert after reading the book, yeah. and and I looked at it differently. So I I, I highly recommend uh, that for uh, our diggers uh, out there.
0: Thank you. Let's do it again sometime. Got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got a feeling, a feeling I can.
1: Thank you, Ken Mansfield. Reading his book and talking with Ken and listening to the music from the rooftop concert, I was struck by a couple of things. First, which is obvious from the recordings in the film, uh, no rust on these guys. Even after two plus years off the road, the Beatles were still a tight, punchy, badass rock and roll band. And throwing Mr. Billy Preston on electric piano? Oh, hells yeah. What if they had gone back on the road? And second, what is a guy like Ken Mansfield to do after scaling the highest peak of the musical landscape? What is it like to realize this was that moment in your life, like being a D-Day? And not just the event itself and its enormous significance, but the bonding of the people associated with the day. Uh, Ken takes time to appreciate his comrades there on the front lines with him, Jack Oliver, Ken Harrington, Chris O'Dell, and Alan Parsons and especially Mal Evans, who Ken was particularly close with until his death. Once again, the book is The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert, and the author is Ken Mansfield. And in closing, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> this is Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, and this has been Deeper Digs and Rock, a production of Pantheon Podcasts. Keep up the rockin'. My well, baby said you're traveling on the one after 909 I said move over honey, I'm traveling on that line I said move over once, move over twice Come on baby, don't be the ice Said you're traveling on the one after 909 Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love, from the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rocking right into the next generation.
0: Deeper Digs in Rocks. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.
1: Uh, crackers, napkins, Clorox disinfecting bleach, check. Now, roses, uh, what if they wilt? Attention, shoppers. Clorox disinfecting bleach is a great way to keep flowers fresh
0: for longer. It'll even work for that uh, ink stain on your shirt.
1: Ah, not again. Clean anything with the versatile Clorox disinfecting bleach. Discover more hacks at clorox.com learn.